Welcome back to Home Gastronomics, bringing the professional chef into your home kitchen in podcast form. Today, we are taking the mystery out of making stocks and sauces. We'll talk about different kinds of stocks and how to make them, as well as both the mother sauces and the derivative sauces. Of course, we've also got a word of the day and questions. We really would like you to be part of our family here. There are so many simple ways to do this. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, subscribe on YouTube, and you can send us a hello or a question through any of these or the contact us link on our website. Giving us a like and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play helps to share us with wider audiences. If you really want to have a major effect, consider becoming a patron with a small monthly donation. Plus, there's all kinds of rewards and benefits to being a patron. We'll have all the links in the show notes for you to click on. Thanks for your support. And here we go. We have a little bit of a longer topic today, since we are covering two closely related things. We're going to talk about stocks to begin with, and then move on to the basics of sauces, the mother sauces and their derivatives. Of course, we wouldn't be home gastronomics if we didn't think about how stocks and sauces elevate our cooking game at home. So there's also that. First, some definitions. Stock is a flavored liquid from water simmered with bones, vegetables, and seasonings. It serves as a base for soups and sauces. Sauce is a thickened liquid used to add flavor, moisture, richness, and visual appeal to food. There are a few different kinds of stocks that you'll come across. A white stock uses chicken, veal, or beef bones and tends to stay relatively clear and colorless. Brown stock uses chicken, veal, or beef bones that have been roasted or caramelized before being simmered. It has a rich, dark color with a strong flavor. A fish stock, or a fumé, involves slowly cooking fish bones or crustacean shells and vegetables without coloring them and then simmering them. You may also add wine and lemon juice to give you a strongly flavored, colorless liquid. Lastly, court bouillon uses no bones and adds an acidic liquid such as vinegar or wine. It's used to poach fish or vegetables. Using this knowledge, we're going to talk about the basics and you'll be able to expand it to make any stock that you want. Last episode, we talked about mirepoix which is the vegetable blend of onions, carrots, and celery that we will be using in our stocks. In episode 4, the one about salads, we talked about sachets, which will be the makeup of herbs and seasonings that we will be using. This leaves only the bones to talk about as far as ingredients go. Some bones are better than others for stocks in each animal, and often require some small prep work to make it ready to use. In beef and veal, the back, neck, and shank bones from younger animals are better to use due to the high percentage of connective tissue. This connective tissue is high in collagen, which is converted to gelatin during cooking. This gelatin adds the richness and body to the finished stock. The bones should be cut down to pieces about 3 to 4 inches in length, which will allow them to release much more flavor into the stock. 
The best chicken bones to use are from the neck and back. You can use a whole chicken carcass, but it should be cut up for easier handling. When using fish, you want to use bones from lean fish, such as sole or flounder. Fatty fish, such as salmon or tuna, are not used because the high fat content and distinctive flavor do not produce a good stock. You can use an entire fish carcass, but again, it should be cut up for easy handling and then should be rinsed in cold water to remove leftover blood, scales, and impurities. Let's talk about some numbers. I promise it won't be complex. The numbers are also guidelines, so as long as you're close, you'll be fine. If anything, you can err slightly on the heavy side as it will add more flavor to your stock. Remember that the ratio for mirepoix is 2 to 1 to 1 of onions to carrots to celery. How much mirepoix to use and how big to cut them depends how much bones you're using and how long it will be cooking for. You should use about one pound of mirepoix per 10 pounds of bones. You then want to use a ratio of one to two by weight of bones to water. This equates to about one quart of water per one pound of bones. Some chefs will argue that you only need enough water to cover your ingredients. The last time I made stock, I used about six pounds of chicken backs, half a pound of mirepoix, and about two gallons of water. You can see what I mean by these numbers being guidelines. The sachet is a standard mix of parsley stems, thyme, bay leaf, and peppercorn. Tie it into some cheesecloth and toss it into your water. White stock follows a basic procedure of adding your ingredients to the water and allowing it to simmer for 3-4 to four hours when you're using chicken, or 6-8 to eight hours when you're using beef or veal. A brown stock has a few extra steps involved to get the rich, dark color and full body. To begin a brown stock, you would want to start by caramelizing the bones in a 375 degree oven for about an hour. After roasting the bones, remove and reserve the excess fat and deglaze the pan. Pour the deglazing liquid with the bones into your stock pot. Then saute the mirepoix and some of the reserved fat until good and brown, and then add that to the stockpot. You'll also want to add a tomato product. Commonly, tomato paste is used, but you can also use crushed tomatoes, canned whole tomatoes, or even fresh tomatoes. Add this at the same time as the mirepoix. Fish stock also varies the process slightly. The bones should definitely be blanched after rinsing. It is only simmered, for 30 to 45 minutes. The mirepoix should be cut very small since the cook time is so short. There are some basic principles of making stock that you should follow. First, always start with cold water. This is because the cold water will dissolve the blood and other impurities. These impurities will coagulate and float to the surface and can be removed. Second, simmer the stock gently. You shouldn't allow the stock to boil, as boiling will agitate it and emulsify the fats, making it cloudy. In general, a cloudy stock is not a bad thing, as the most important aspect is the flavor of the stock. 
Third, you should skim the stock to remove the fats and impurities from the surface often. This also helps to prevent the stock from becoming cloudy. When it's finished, you want to cool it as quickly as possible. We have to keep the temperature danger zone in mind. Between 41 and 135 degrees, bacteria multiplies at a much faster rate and could cause a foodborne illness. If you have freezer space, you can transfer the stock into a clean metal container and put it in the freezer. Otherwise, you will want to use an ice bath. One of the tricks that I use is to pour the cool stock into a large ice tray with each cube being about a quarter cup and freeze it. Then pop the cubes into a zippy bag and store in the freezer until you need them. It's super easy to melt the cubes in a small pot or the microwave and you know exactly how much stock you're using. Make sure you label the bag, especially if you're making multiple stocks. Now, let's talk about sauces. In the most basic of terms, a sauce is simply a liquid combined with a thickening agent and seasonings. Traditionally, there are five mother sauces, which form the basis for numerous other sauces, which are sometimes called small sauces. As we look at the mother sauces, you'll notice that they all have the same thing in common, being a liquid and a thickener, like we mentioned a second ago. We're going to break down each mother sauce and talk about some of its associated small sauces. The five mother sauces are bechamel, velouté, espagnol, tomato, and hollandaise. Bechamel is the simplest mother sauce. It is a classic cream sauce of milk thickened with a white roux. Some of its most common derivatives include a cheddar sauce, where you add cheese, Worcestershire, and mustard. A Mornay, which is another cheese sauce using Gruyere, cream, and butter. And Nantua, which uses butter, cream, paprika, and diced shellfish. Velouté is a white stock that has been thickened by a blonde roux. Velouté is not picky as to if you use veal stock, chicken stock, or even fish stock, so long as it's a white stock. This makes velouté a very versatile sauce that you can match to many dishes, depending on which stock you use. While most of the mother sauces are not served straight, I will tell you that velouté is a very good sauce on its own. Velouté has two very common small sauces. Alamande uses veal stock, lemon, and a mixture of cream and egg yolk to give it a rich smoothness. The other, sauce supreme, uses chicken stock, mushrooms, and cream. A very elegant topping for a good roasted chicken dish. Espanol is a classical brown sauce that uses a brown stock with a brown roux. While it is extremely flavorful on its own, you will see a common derivative by adding red wine, shallots, and bay leaf and thyme to create a bordelais sauce. Tomato sauce is thickened with a vegetable puree, usually a tomato puree, to go with the tomatoes that make up the other part of the sauce. Tomato sauce is a weirdness when compared to the other mother sauces, as it should be slightly grainy when compared to the smoothness of the other sauces. 
Traditionally, tomato sauce was made using stock and thickened with a roux. Modernly, most kitchens do not use a roux and instead simmer the tomatoes, herbs, and flavoring ingredients together and then puree them. Most people are familiar with bolognese, a classic meat sauce, which adds ground beef, wine, and oregano to a tomato sauce. You can also make a Creole sauce by adding the Holy Trinity, garlic, thyme, and cayenne. Further, a Spanish sauce adds mushrooms and olives to the Creole sauce. The last mother sauce, hollandaise, is warm, clarified butter thickened with egg yolk. It is an emulsion of the two combined with a small amount of water and lemon juice or vinegar. Hollandaise has a couple of well-known small sauces. Bernays adds shallots, tarragon, and is reduced in vinegar, while a mousseline adds whipped cream to a standard hollandaise. Some other common sauces that are not considered mother sauces are mayonnaise, beurblanc, and a pan sauce. Mayonnaise is an emulsion formed when oil is combined with a small amount of vinegar and uses the lecithin found in egg yolks to hold the emulsion. Mayonnaise is the basis for a number of other items, including aiolis and remoulades. Beurblanc is another emulsified butter sauce that is made without using egg yolks. It uses shallots and white wines, which are reduced for flavor, while very cold butter is slowly added to create the emulsion. Last, a pan sauce is a sauce that uses the drippings left in a pan after cooking to add flavoring. It may be thickened by reduction or with a roux. After cooking a meat in a pan, you would deglaze the pan with some wine or stock, using the remaining fat to create a roux if doing so, and then add the ingredients for your sauce and finish it off. In most of the sauces, we talked about a roux. But what the heck is a roux? A roux is the most common thickening agent used. It is made up of equal parts of flour and fat. Butter or clarified butter is the fat that is usually used, but other forms of fat work just fine. A roux thickens by the starches in the flour gelatinizing or absorbing moisture when placed in a liquid and heated. As the moisture is absorbed, the product thickens. A good, properly thickened sauce has no lumps, it does not taste floury, and is consistent enough to coat the back of the spoon. This last characteristic is called nappe. It is the key to knowing when your sauce is thick enough. The easiest way to tell is to draw the back of a spoon through the sauce and then run your finger across it. If the trail stays and does not diminish, then you have achieved nappe. There are three types of roux, completely based on cooking time. A white roux is used in white sauces or dishes where little or no color is desired. It is cooked for a very short amount of time and is removed from the heat as soon as it develops a frothy or bubbly appearance. A blonde roux is for ivory-colored sauces or where richer flavor is the goal, 
It has a slightly longer cook time until it begins to take on a little color from the flour caramelizing. A brown roux is for, guess what? Brown sauces or dark colored dishes. It is cooked until it develops a dark color with a nutty flavor and scent. You do want to remember that the thickening ability of the roux diminishes the longer it is cooked. The starch granules begin to break down and gelatinization is actually prevented. Because of this, more brown roux is required than a blonde or white roux to thicken a given amount of liquid. When you're using a roux, you should add cold stock to a hot roux or add room temperature roux to a hot stock. There is a very strong risk of causing lumps if you do it the other way around. Some other tips on using a roux in making sauces. Avoid aluminum pots. Anodized aluminum is okay. In general, I say avoid aluminum pots for everything. The problem with aluminum is that as you scrape and whisk in the pan, what you're cooking will take on a grayish, dirty color and a slightly metallic flavor. Next, avoid extreme temperatures. If a roux is colder than room temp, the fats will be solidified. The same thing with very cold stocks. It will drop the temperature of the roux and begin to solidify the fat. Avoid over-thickening it. This is an amazingly easy mistake to make. Roux do not begin to thicken until the sauce is almost boiling, and then continues for several more minutes. Keep in mind that if you will be cooking the sauce for a long time, it will also be thickened by reduction. So you want to wait to add the roux until the last few minutes. Another method of thickening is by using cornstarch or arrowroot in a slurry. These thicken almost double the amount of liquid as the same amount of roux, but they must be used in a slurry. To make a slurry, you would add the cornstarch to cold water and whisk until it becomes a cloudy liquid. The cold slurry can be mixed into either a hot or cold liquid, but then only begins to thicken when it is heated. Unlike roux, a slurry begins to thicken a hot liquid almost instantly. Like a roux, it does need to gently cook off the raw starch flavor. One last thing about sauces is you probably want to strain most of them to get a nice, smooth sauce. This month's Word of the Day has an interesting story behind it. I was talking to a friend about making stock and how we store it at home for use. They made a comment that they made a lot of bone broth. This started a lengthy conversation about the differences between her bone broth and my stock. So our word is bone broth, and we're going to be talking about the differences between bone broth, regular broth, and stock. As we now know, stock is a flavored liquid made from bones, which may be roasted, mirepoix, and aromatics that is simmered for anywhere from four to eight hours. Broth, on the other hand, is made from meat, which may or may not include bones, mirepoix, and aromatics that is simmered for less time, 
usually about two hours. Bone broth is another story from both the ingredients and the cooking time. It is made with bones, which may or may not include meat, but does not use mirepoix or aromatics. It is simmered for at least 24 hours or longer. The feeling is that the longer cooking time of the bone broth pulls more nutrition and gelatin from the source. Nutritionally, the gelatin and collagen are both beneficial to your health and skin. It also has more flavor imparted from the longer cooking time. Bone broth can be used in place of stock in most cases. Bone broth can also be enjoyed by itself, although adding some veggies or herbs will make it better. Stock, on the other hand, is better used as a base to build on rather than consumed on its own. So, there's the basics of the three broken down. And now that's something you know. This is the patron section of the podcast where we shout out to our new patrons. I want to thank everyone for listening and following, and then tell you a little bit about some of our patron rewards. Everyone that becomes a patron gets access to a private Facebook group where we do group chats and Facebook Live events for patrons only, as well as some other patron-only content that can be found on Podbean. All patrons also get their name up in lights on the supporters page of our website. For a $2 or above pledge, you get an on-air thank you for supporting us. At $5, you can record a short message that will be used on the show. 10 and above pledges get a one-on-one chat and consult with the chef. At $20, you get a personalized thank you video. And at the highest level, you can score a video conference to go over anything you want. You can see that we have some pretty special rewards. There are even more rewards that are out there as we reach our goals, including some awesome show swag that we'll come up with. It's super easy to become a patron. Head over to patron.podbean.com slash home gastronomics. Enter your pledge and click that big green button that says become a patron. It's simple as that, and it would show how truly awesome of a fan you are. Thanks! Our question this time probably develops a pattern. We were asked what can be substituted for pasta, especially when you have gluten concerns. Allergies are a major concern in the food industry, and something I deal with regularly in the restaurant. I'm glad to be talking about this since it is such a large issue. It used to be that folks with allergies or dietary concerns just had to go without certain things. However, allergies are more common now, along with new outlooks and ways of preparing food to accommodate them. One new idea for substitution for pastas is zucchini or squash that has been processed using a tool called a spiralizer. Another is roasted spaghetti squash, whose cooked flesh becomes stringy with the texture and appearance of spaghetti noodles, but no gluten. There are also a number of gluten-free pasta options available in the grocer, depending on what kind of cuisine you're cooking. For an Asian flair, there are a couple of options. You can use soba noodles, which are made from the gluten-free buckwheat flour and have a strong nutty flavor. Some soba noodles do combine wheat flour with it, so definitely read the label. You can also use something called cellophane, also called glass noodles, made from bean, potato, or tapioca starches mixed with water, or pad thai noodles, which are a kind of rice noodle. 
Other alternative pastas include brown rice pasta with its mild flavor and chewy texture. The newcomer, chickpea pasta, boasting a slightly more chewy texture than regular pasta and a hint of chickpea flavor. Quinoa has long been a gluten-free substitute that is now making pasta when blended with other grains like corn or rice. You can even decide to make your own pasta at home, which is possibly the best way to know what goes into your food if you're trying to manage dietary concerns. You can use any number of gluten-free flours or alternative flours, like the brown rice flour. You will want to add tapioca starch and xanthan gum to help with the chewy texture and elasticity that you would normally get from the gluten. With that answered, now I need to go make some fresh pasta. Enjoy! I think I've sufficiently stretched your brain for this month. Remember to check out our website and blog at www.homegastronomics.com. Follow us on Facebook at Home Gastronomics, on Twitter at the Chef Chewy, and Home Gastronomics on Instagram. Do us a favor and hit that like or drop us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and even YouTube. We'd really appreciate you considering becoming a patron to support us as well. Otherwise, be sure to tell all of your friends about this cool podcast. You can always send us a message with questions or topic ideas. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.